Well, let's pray and then we can uh, take a look at today's selection from the Confession. Father, thank you for another beautiful day and we ask you, Lord, to help us as we reflect on uh, this passage and, or passages from uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, remembering that this is a distillation of Scripture and consequently uh, there are questions we can raise about how things are put here without challenging Scripture. We're just trying to understand Scripture better and the Confession is intended to help with that. We pray that you'll help us as we think and talk and question this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, let's take a look at uh, chapter 21. If you have your hymnal, you'll, you'll find the confession in the back. It begins on page 847. So we're in chapter 21. We're making our way doggedly, you know, sort of consistently, slowly <laughs> through the confession. Systematically, there we go. That's the magic word. Systematically through the confession. So we're at uh, paragraph number five of chapter 21. And uh, this chapter, as you recall, is uh, concerning uh, worship and keeping Sabbath, Sabbath day. So the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscienceable hearing of the word uh, in obedience unto God, with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, beside religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgiving upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. Okay, now there are a number of things here to think about, and I want to begin with sort of uh, a way of thinking that is, I think, unsound, but is very popular in the larger evangelical world, and that is the equation of worship with singing worship songs that are sort of emotionally rich or emotionally moving. Have you ever been in a setting where they say, we're going to have worship now, and then after you've sung for like 50 minutes with your hands in the air and everybody's swaying and like that kind of stuff, and then they say, okay, worship, worship's over. Now it's time for teaching. Have you ever been in a setting like that? That's weird. It's weird for lots of reasons. But where do you think that comes from? Uh, this is certainly not the way the Westminster divines thought about it. I mean, we're talking about religious worship including things like reading scripture, hearing preaching, those kinds of things. Where does this infatuation with emotional moving go on, come from? Can I say one thing? Well, you can say more than one thing, Molly. Okay. Um, I think it comes from the Baptist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Molly attributes it to the Baptist. I, 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 there's some truth there. I think you've got something there. I'd like to dig into that a little bit. I was... A volunteer at a Baptist church near where I lived over in Hazeldale for two and a half years. And finally, every, everybody had tried to, to get me to become a Baptist. And I said, I'm second generation Presbyterian. There you, go. you know, there are a lot of fun things about Baptists. I like Baptists. I've got lots of friends who are Baptists. But 
it's, a, it's really remarkable how worked up they get about a sacrament that they don't think actually does anything. You ever notice this? It's sort of like, what are you so worked up about if you don't think it actually does anything? Anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, David. Uh, I don't know if you're looking for this answer, but I think some of this emotionalism goes back to Finney. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Charles, I think it's Gradson Finney. Are folks familiar with Finney? So, Second Great Awakening. So, he actually has a Presbyterian background, to our shame. Um, and he uh, didn't believe in original sin. And he thought more or less that you could kind of manufacture conversions if you did a couple of things. Well, he was, his, his, his training was as a lawyer. And he was in the, you know, the, the Northeast, in what today is referred to as the Burned Over District. Are you familiar with the term, Burned Over District? There have been so many revivals that it was like a burned over. It was like a wasteland. Uh, it's also where that same region is where Joseph Smith got his start. Uh, so the Mormons. Uh, so there are a lot of weird things that come out of mid-late 19th century. The Adventist movement. We've got Seventh-day Adventists right over here. Trace their origins back to New York. <laughs> it's just all kinds of stuff that come from that part of the, of the United States that are part of the Second Great Awakening. So one of the things that does characterize the Second Great Awakening is this emphasis on technique. So technique is like uh, the big thing. So that's one of the ways you can distinguish the First Great Awakening from the Second. So like when you, like when you hear about the First Great Awakening, it's like, I, you know, it's almost like unbelievable in the sense that here's Jonathan Edwards just kind of reading this dense manuscript, you know, with his face up close to it, and then people are like, you know, falling to their knees and repentance. There's like zero manipulation going on. <laughs> it's just like, how can we make this uh, the least conducive to emotional moving? That's the first great awakening. <laughs> Except you did have people like George Whitfield, who was a great orator. There's this marvelous episode. So this, again, kind of getting into this. So it wasn't as though there, there wasn't great uh, oratory in the first great awakening. So you, there's this marvelous account that Benjamin Franklin has of his attending uh, an outdoor preaching uh, thing with George Whitfield. So were you aware that, that uh, Franklin was Whitfield's publisher in the United States? Some of you knew that. So he made a lot of money off of Whitfield. So he, <laughs> so he was happy to promote him and, and stuff like that. But there was this point where, he, where Whitfield was taking a, an offering for uh, an orphanage, I think it was. And Whitfield starts off with the appeal. And, and Franklin determines, I am not going to give. I am not going to give. So he's like made this decision. Like, you know, like two paragraphs in, he said, well, I decided I was going to give this now. By the time he's done, he's emptying his pockets. <laughs> and it's like, this reminds me of another great experience I had. This was with John Bordish. Remember John, Mark? So we, when I was uh, at, in college, I was on student council, and I was responsible for bringing in a speaker for speakers for chapel. And I had this friend who was a black pastor in inner city uh, Boston, and he was a great preacher, just right out of the, you know, sort of the, the black Baptist tradition. Lots of lots of. Yeah, I, I remember one time I talked to one black pastor, and he said, "I've got, I've got three services in my church. They're for different." like generations of black folks. So the youngest was for the buppies, 
that's black urban professionals, if you haven't heard that. It's like yuppies, but black. <laughs> so they were all like, you know, coming three-piece suits. And when I would preach, he says, when I preach to them, it's like preaching, you know, to a board meeting. <laughs> They're all like taking notes, you know, <laughs> very middle-class, upperly mobile people, you know, that kind of thing. It's all cerebral. He says, when I get to their grandparents, it's like, it's, it's like the same message, but lots of gravy. <laughs> lots of gravy. I, I remember I was at this, this, this other black church in, in Philadelphia, Christian Stronghold Baptist Church. It was really an impressive church, about 5,000 people. They were zero debt. Pastor is a guy named Willie Richardson. He'd stand up. He looked like he was like, a, a, like the president of, of Prudential Insurance or something like that. He said that, that's, kind of, and that's how we deliver his messages. But he had what I call the designated whooper. So there was <laughs> all of his elders behind him on the, on the platform. And there was this old black guy who had just woolly white hair and a big woolly beard <laughs> and kind of thin, kind of like you think of Mr. Bojangles. <laughs> and at a certain point, like at a designated point, he'd he just jump up <laughs> and start doing his thing. And all the old black ladies taking out their hankies and doing this, you know, really getting into it. And, uh, and then he, Willie would not even blink. He would just keep going. <laughs> anyway, but getting to this emotional kind of thing, there is something in our American, particularly revivalist tradition, Cane Ridge, another big deal. Kentucky, Presbyterians again. We, don't, we can't just point at the, a finger at the Baptists or the Pentecostals. So the whole Second Great Awakening kind of gets, us, kind of gets off in Cane Ridge. I think it's Tennessee or Kentucky, can't remember which. Kentucky, yeah. But anyway, that went on for like days, days and days. But it was all, you know, kind of very planned. How can we bring about the kinds of things we want to see? And so about the same time, there was a stress in philosophy, believe it or not, on sentiments. So David Hume and other people like John uh, or Adam Smith, uh, these sort of uh, enlightenment philosophers, philosophers were trying to move away from the classical Christian understanding of the, of the nature of reason and trying to understand moral, um, moral life completely within the framework of human psychology. And they identified uh, empathy as being the thing you want to sort of stir up in people for them to be moral. So the emphasis on the passions, the emphasis on the emotions, also coincides with what's going on at this time in the larger world. The romantic movement, the romanticism, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that, the early you know, 19th century, all that's sort of in the air. So it wasn't as though it was just Finney, but Finney certainly kind of planted that. So is this why Marx referred to religious people as opium for the masses, kind of like it's your... It's your thing, get you guys wherever you need to go, you know? Well, that, that's certainly part of the picture, but Marx wasn't like taking it easy on stodgy Presbyterians either, you know. <laughs> For him, um, it was sort of like, how do we explain? So Marx is a materialist. I don't think people really understand what materialism, the implications of materialism are for the mind. But basically, what it means is that, is that reason uh, is merely a tool to get what you want. It's not actually something that necessarily gets you in touch with truth. So if you lose touch with truth, 
because there's no basis in materialism for transcendent truths. Everything is just biochemistry. So the only thing that really matters to Marx is power, economic power. That's it. And how do you get it? Violence. That's the only way things change. Yeah. I think we need to be a little bit careful. Coming from a average couple background, please watch the Jesus Revolution. You'll understand why what I'm saying. But Marx's attack, and a lot of people's attack on revivalistic type of music. Okay, really, if you look at Chuck Smith's Calvary Chapel, goes back to the Azusa revivals, and then it carries on. And I believe, this is my personal opinion, that Marx's Marx, Marx's attack is against the Holy Spirit. Not oh yeah, it's not just picking on. Yeah, I, what I, I'm I saying is, there is the third person of the Trinity involved in these revivals. Uh, otherwise, we just have to discount Edwards and Whitman along with the rest. Um, and that Azusa was a revival, and so was Calvary Chapel. These are things that God, I believe. Unless you just want to just reject it all out of hand, that God did, and certainly I was at a Calvary Chapel a couple of weeks ago, and it was you know half an hour of singing. I like singing, but maybe not that much. But, but, but did they refer to preaching and worship? They they considered the singing as worship. That's what I'm getting at. That's it, and that's where it's But about. on the other hand, we will say, okay, what's Presbyterian always say? Because I've heard some people say it's church, or at least me. <laughs> the singing of songs is what we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. That's what George. So I'm 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 stretched, or I'm I'm uh, I have two favorite people: George Gillespie. This is Gillespieanism right here. This is anti singing anything else but the psalms only, exclusive psalms, which the Presbyterians were, and then Larry Norman. (laughs) (laughs) Why should the devil have all the good music? (laughs) Does anybody remember Larry Norman besides me? (laughs) I mean, I guess what I'm saying is let's not discount we got to be careful not to talk badly against the Holy Spirit, I guess. Well, and I think that's, that's a point well taken. I would say that any uh, error is taking something good in, you know, to a, a, a sort of a, a point where it shouldn't, be, shouldn't go. So and our, our emotions certainly have a lot to do with our lives and with our decisions. I don't think there's anything uh, wrong with that. My, my criticism of that movement, generally speaking, is that it doesn't consider preaching worship doesn't consider the reading, hearing of scripture worship, doesn't even consider prayer worship. Um, I mean, it's worship is just getting all worked up. And to, to your point, I really like the way you started out with the singing as well, that's worship, because that's the key to this paragraph. That's not worship. So I, I'm taking what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I think it's part of worship. I mean, it's the singing of the Psalms. You know, it's not as though it's, it, it doesn't have, so he says, you know, grace in the heart. You know, so the heart has a, a, a significant role, but uh, the problem is when you take it, like anything, like if we take um, the importance of making a decision for Christ too far, we lose sight of God's sovereignty, 
if we take even God's sovereignty to the wrong place, we lose, you know, the importance of obedience. So. Well, I was, was going to say, what you, you kind of see now is uh, people kind of pushing against all this traditionalism and denominations. I know people like this. We're non denom man. You know, we're like the early church. Well, the early church. Be yeah, well, the, well, the early church, and maybe, maybe I, I can be corrected here, but the early church held the preaching in high regards. You, you don't see them singing. I mean, Eutychus fell out of the room, not because they were singing all out of the window. Well, in fact, some of the church fathers prohibited singing. Yeah, so what, I, what I'm getting at is that if you want to be more like the early church you profess to be, then the preaching and the reading of the word would be held high in esteem. That should be the majority of worship. It's almost inversed with, I've, I've been to churches with 45 minutes singing and 15 minutes preaching. You're like, what, what happened? Did I just, you know? Yeah, and, and, that, and that's all I'm getting at is that we, we're in a situation today where I think a lot of folks uh, erroneously think they're, biases are not uh, cultural and, and sort of culturally acquired. Uh, my, my larger point is that their sort of thinking about worship has been shaped in ways that they don't even understand. And so what we need to do is not, as Victor says, dismiss the importance of emotions or dismiss the importance of singing or the work of the Holy Spirit but we need to challenge folks to say to to see that their understanding of worship is too narrow. It's not uh, including things. Yeah, Catherine. Also, to add on to what Mr. Pack said, I've been in a church where, um, and this is maybe because it was the high school group, people would refer to the Holy Spirit as it. Mm. Say I'm filled by it, or like they would talk about being on a spiritual high. Yeah. And back then, I think that kind of rolled over my head. But just thinking about it now, it just it seems like well, it is an absolute disrespect to yeah. say, well, I'm on a spiritual high because of this emotional. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's. I, I've I've heard the same language. Um, when we refer to the spirit as an it, we're sort of losing sight of the fact that the spirit is a person, um, and so that's not an appropriate. Um, term to use. But when you get to the spiritual high stuff, um, it does, you know, there is something about, particularly in many conversion uh, experiences where, particularly in the early phases of a person's conversion uh, and new life, there really is a kind of joy and um, even emotional richness that is remarkable. And it just is something that is cherished, as, you know, even as a memory. So people will get to a different place in life and say, well, those, I wish I could go back to that. And sometimes they're actually trying to stir it up all the time. You know, they're looking for that again. Um, yeah, Mark. Yeah, Wesley. Yeah. Yeah, Wesley. Uh, that's, you know, I, I'm familiar with John Wesley's experience. So some of you are familiar with him. He was the father of Methodism. He's a good friend of George Whitfield. They got along pretty well, even though they disagreed pretty strongly about certain things. But uh, they both belonged to something in Oxford called the Holy Club, uh, which was, and they were referred to as Methodists because they were so methodical in reading and fasting and, you know, sort of charting their spiritual experiences. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's a little strange that when you, when you encounter people who tend to talk about the Holy Spirit a lot in worship, it almost always is something that is very out of control. It's very erratic. 
Yeah. Know, people are they're on the ground or they're yeah. sobbing. And I think of course the Holy Spirit can fall that way and it can really make people do things like that. But I mean I think you also have to come I, is that the only way he works? Can he not bring immense yeah. peace or you know, just things that are more I don't know, I just I find that interesting when people say like, Oh well your worship service, it's not very emotional. It's like but that doesn't mean that there's a lack of the spirit necessarily, you know. I think it could potentially, but I think that if you're looking at it just from that narrow view of, well, you know, people aren't sobbing if they're not, you know, just if they aren't out of control in a sense. Yeah. Well, and I think there's there's some things interesting things to, to reflect on with that. Um, one of you know, I'm, I'm I have some familiarity with with this kind of thing and this this way of looking at the world. Um, one of the one of the unintended consequences of that is a, a seeking after experiences. So, you know, when you let's say I I, I saw this testimony envy, you know what I'm getting at. So, like the you know you got uh, the local um, teen challenge comes to your church to raise money, <laughs> and you got this choir of guys who have been dramatically converted from horrendous things, you know, crime and drugs and stuff like that. And they're giving their testimonies, and all the young people in the, in the church are in this weird spot where they're kind of envying the guy, the, these guys, and they're thinking to themselves, I wish I had been a really rotten sinner too, so I could have a great testimony like those folks. And that's just weird <laughs> at one level. Uh, but it does happen a lot. You know, in, in those settings where you've got, you know, uh, covenant children who are like wondering, am I really converted? I didn't have that experience. I can't tell you a day or a time or an hour or anything like that. I didn't have, I didn't fall down. I didn't have this big emotional, you know, event. Yeah. It sounds like the prodigal son's brother. Well, I mean, he was not a nice guy, though. <laughs> How come I don't get the lamb roasted? How come I didn't get that experience? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there's kind of the envy of the of the the celebration surrounding the conversion. Yeah, yeah, and I and I and I. So um, again, this you know we we can look at the Apostle Paul's experience on the Damascus Road and say that's great. But we, we shouldn't say that's normative. Unless you've had that kind of thing happen, you're not a real Christian. I've actually come across people who think that way. You know, you didn't cry? You're not a real Christian. You didn't go to the altar? You're not a real Christian. Real Christians do that stuff. It's weird, but I can't tell you how many people I've come across who think in those terms. Any, any other thoughts or questions about some of this stuff? Uh, yeah, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan. Yeah. No, it's all right. I'll, I'll get to you, Molly. Jonathan. Okay. <laughs> this paragraph was informative to me, at least, um, during all the COVID restriction nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, it draws some very clear lines right. of what is what are, what are the what is the essence of worship. What are the essential elements? There's, and there's, there's four elements here. Yeah. Scripture, preaching, singing, and sacraments. Right. right? And those are non-negotiable right. even when 
And some, of those, do, uh, and some of those you can't do, uh, you know, yeah. through through the internet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Especially, especially the fourth one. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, um, but you know, all of them should be. You know, there's there's other scripts that I can definitely, you know, right. against against Zoom worship. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, regardless of what the civil magistrate says, yeah, those are the essential elements of worship, right. um, and. And, and, and they're necessary and required. Um, and, and we don't have the authority to neglect them. So uh, have you heard about the new film, The Essential Church? Just, just came out. It's actually showing at the Battleground Cinema right now, right alongside Sound of Freedom and Barbie. <laughs> so if you, if, you want, if, you want, if you want to check out uh, Essential Church, which is about John MacArthur's church and all of the, and they trace, by the way, they trace the resistance all the way back to the Covenanters in Scotland in the film. So it's it's kind of an historically informed uh, documentary as well as something just about uh, what happened uh, there. It's called the Essential Church. Yeah, Jennifer. Well, I I would say that. Um Having lived in Canada a long time, we have a distorted sense of worship because we've been at churches where communion was never done, maybe once every three months. And then we've gone to churches where you remain silent and you speak, don't speak, and you have communion. But then, you know, it's like, I, I just didn't realize that, like, you just don't even think of the preaching of the word as worship. Like, you don't, I didn't think of that. And then my, I, and then the commu- like the whole package versus just bits, like you end up having bits. Yeah, there's a, th- a larger theology of worship that we need to embrace that um, because our tendency is to equate sort of emotions with spiritual um, experience, um, we think that the only th- time that we're actually worship in worship is when our emotions are moving. And the, I think, more uh, informed, biblically informed understanding is that it's God speaking to us and us responding. So uh, with the focus exclusively on our singing, uh, and particularly a particular kind of singing, sort of a, a singing that's intended to get us emotionally stirred up, we lose sight of a lot of what's supposed to be going on in worship. God feeding us, God speaking to us, us responding in worship and praise. So there's, there's certainly stuff for us to do, and that's part of it. But to say that's the only part that's worship is misses, misses everybody. Molly, you wanted to say something? Yeah. I, how do you know if you're a real Christian? Well, the, the Spirit testifies to your spirit, and then there's the confession that you can make. You know, in other words, confessing the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, the spirit testifying to your spirit is part of it, but also the, the confession that you make, you know, is is key. Uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, a person can fake that. That's true. But when a person confesses that in truth, that's an indication that the spirit's been at work. Because the minister, Jared Crowley asked me, we were out someplace very close here, and we were, you know, and there were, um, a, there was a guy, I don't know who he was, 
that I've been going there about eight months. And so he asked me five basic questions. And he said, have you ever been to church? And I said, I've been to church constantly. Yeah, being part of a worshiping body is really important. Yeah. And my father told me before we, we went in, into the... And he said, you love God, Molly. And I said, yes, Daddy. And do you promise not ever to swear? Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> and my, my dad never swore. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that when we when we think about you know uh, what de defines a Christian, if someone believes in their heart, you know that Jesus rose from the dead and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's that's a, a very sort of concise scriptural definition of a believer. Um, sometimes we'll string along some things that we we expect to be evidences of the Spirit that sometimes get reduced to kind of a legalistic kind of thing. So, for example, uh, playing with cards. There was a time in the United States where, uh, and even parts of Europe, where playing cards was considered a sign of, you know, a sinful life. Um, so there would be a strict sort of uh, application of the no playing cards rule. Um, and that's where sometimes people can say, well, that, that's kind of getting legalistic. It's kind of losing sight of the true scriptural understanding of what it means to be converted. And I think that's, that's important to, to, to make that distinction that these certain things. So like with swearing, of course, swearing, I guess it depends what you mean. So for example, we're talking about you know, oaths and vows here as being uh, legitimate and good. So I, you know, when you swear, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? Now that's one thing, but when you're swearing by you know, using God's name in vain or just speaking crudely or you know, so forth, that's certainly not a good thing, and we should discourage that. Well, my father was born in 1911, my mom was born in 1914. So they had certain ideals that were presented to them. Sure. Yeah, that, that's, that was a very common set of things that people would use as markers. Say, okay, that person is, is a religious person. Yeah. We use four markers. Going back to what Mr. Bath said over here. And what Carly said is that we should not we should not look down upon our form of worship as it were. Because I think that we are utilizing the means of Grace and the word here is grace, and that's usually the the divines are using kind of code words grace, ordinary, extraordinary. These are all kind of words like talking about the Holy Spirit without saying him, definitely not it. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit works has has been has been proven to show historically that God through the power of His Holy Spirit works mightily in this church and other churches when we are utilizing these certain, quote, means of grace. There are four of them here. So reading the word, preaching of, of the word, singing of songs or songs and the sacraments. And if you love these things, Molly, if these things are in your heart and you love them, 
there's a very good indication that you're a child of God. Right, right. Well, let's go back and take a look at each of these means of grace because I've got kind of sidetracked with a, a, some, some thoughts about the way things are being, you know, are, are understood sort of in the larger world. So let's go back to this. So um, the reading of the scriptures with godly fear. That's an interesting statement. Uh, has two parts, uh, reading the scriptures and then godly fear. So um, scripture can be read in places without godly fear. That's the implication, right? So you can find yourselves perhaps in a church that's uh, apostate, where they do read portions of the Bible every week. But is there godly fear accompanying that? What would that mean? What would godly fear mean? Any, any thoughts? Yep, Jennifer. So uh, in Canada, we have a Presbyterian church that is gay-affirming and marries homosexuals. Right. And yet my son met the girl at church, a camp doing a all-church camp, and he was seeing her, and I said, well, they don't take God's word at, as God's word because right. how could they every day get up and preach and consider themselves Christians? Right. Yeah, I think one evidence of godly fear is trying to understand the word on its own terms. So what's the f- nature of the very first temptation we have in the Bible? Yeah, calling into question something as pretty plainly uh, you know, uh, understandable. <laughs> you know, don't eat from that tree. Well, I don't know. When when you start kind of getting that kind of weaselly kind of treatment when it uh, when it comes to scripture, is that godly fear? Yeah. David. I don't mean to divert off the path, but you're I was listening to. I love listening to League and Air. They have Q and A after their conferences. And I never really thought about this before, but uh, they let anybody from the audience ask questions either, you know, on the microphone or write in a question. And this ties right into what we're, we're, what we're talking because it says right here, the reading of the scriptures. And I never, I mean, I, I agree. I'm, I'm a word-for-word translator, not a dynamic equivalence guy. And I, this happened 20 years ago. But I, I realized the reading of scriptures, the 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 uh, translation we choose as a church. Yeah. Um, and some of the allergic reaction, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek with these guys, we'll never read the NIV in our church, and here's why. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, here's why, and here's why. I was like, those are good cases, you know? And and, and I think the reason why I bring this up is... No, this is right on subject. Yeah, this is this is why we're, we are more of an ESV church than a, you know, fill in the blank. You know? So when you think about scriptures... Uh, translations and so forth, you kind of think about it as a continuum. So uh, at one end you have a paraphrase, which is just some writers or interpreters or translators attempt to put it into some, you know, clever or colloquial way. So you're, you're very far away at that point from a, what you have at the other extreme is an attempt to do as, as close to a word-for-word word translation as possible. So that's kind of the, the, the sort of the far you know, extreme in either direction. So what would be an example of, say, a paraphrase? <laughs> that's more toward the middle. 
<laughs> yeah, good news for modern man. Yep. That message. Yep. The message. Yep. Uh, I, I remember whenever some preacher gets up and starts, you know, his sermon with, you know, reading from the message, I, I, I get up and leave. <laughs> I just, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm against. Uh, who was it that did that? Um, yeah, yeah, Eugene Peterson. Yeah. So um, it's not like I think he's the, a terrible person, but it, and it's, it's, it's got a, you know, maybe a place in your devotional life or something like that. But um, there are far too many liberties taken with that kind of thing. Like E.B. Phillips, I remember, you know, if you remember his uh, paraphrase. So you've got these over here that are often intended to be very accessible, put the, the food on the lowest shelf possible. Like, you know, during the, you know, speaking of the Jesus people thing, you know, the way. I don't know if you remember that, but the way it was a, the contemporary kind of thing. And that was like super popular with hippies. In fact, it had flower children all on the cover. I don't know if you remember the, you know, the, the, those, those Bibles. But, you know, it was sort of like, hey, man, Jesus is my buddy. You know, he's, you know, that kind of thing. So you have that. Over here, you know, you have maybe the New American Standard Bible, you know, kind of over here, then attempt to make it as word for wordish as possible to even to the point where it's almost hard to read it <laughs> but another one that's way over here is king james the king james is actually very accurate uh word for word translation um esv is not as much a word for word as maybe people think uh, but it's good pretty good it's pretty good Yep. And then you have, you know, you mentioned the, the term dynamic equivalency. I actually have a very kind of unique insight into it because Marla's uh, relatives were translators of the NIV. So I'd, I'd spend time. So one of the translators was Dr. Ralph Earl, who was Marla's great uncle, and he was uh, the chairman of the committee. And we would sit and talk about why did you translate this this way and why did you translate that that way. Her grandfather, Harvey Judson Smith Blaney was a translator for the Gospel of John and for Book of Revelation for the NIV. So I, now they would be appalled at what ha- has happened since with like the new NIV and all this kind of stuff and the sort of general neutral NIV. They, they were not into that at all. They were very conservative uh, you know, people who uh, theologically would not be at all happy with what's happened since then. But that was in my mid-70s when they were involved with that. But I was against the dynamic equivalency from pretty early on when I understood exactly what was going on. Because I would ask them, <laughs> why did you translate Sarks the way you did? You know, stuff like that. Yeah, Naomi. So besides just the translation and the reading of a certain translation, my thoughts when in reading this went to uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. Yeah. And then in... Psalms, it talks about an understanding of the Holy One is, uh, or, or knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then, but Proverbs says to the things despise wisdom and instruction. So my thoughts went to, I guess, it's not just reading of Scripture or, I guess, just the sake of doing it, but rather to seek to know God. Yeah. To know God. Um, to understand and, and how to that's live. what God is, I guess. Is no, I think that's, that's great. I think that's right on the money. I think, so, there are a lot of folks who I would say are kind of squishy uh, in this regard because they give too much, um, they, they 
they give too much space for sort of uh, the cultural moment to just sort of limit what the scriptures can say. Let me get to the point. Ever notice that you never hear the household codes read from the pulpit in most churches? The household codes from Ephesians and, and Colossians. Why? Because they're so offensive to modern sensibilities. You just don't hear them. So uh, you'll have people who just skip right over them because they care too much about sort of the, the sentiments or sort of the effect that they might have on people who don't know the Lord or maybe even young Christians and stuff like that. And so there's a kind of m- muting that goes on. So uh, I dealt with this years ago and I got to a place in my life and I said, you know, I think the Apostle Paul is smarter than me. Really brilliant insight, huh? <laughs> I think the Apostle Paul's smarter than me. And I think he's smarter than all of my contemporary colleagues. I think he's smarter than all the people at Harvard Divinity School. I think, he's, I think he knows something that these folks don't know. He's an apostle, for goodness sakes. <laughs> he knows stuff. <laughs> and, and so because of that, I want to understand it as he meant it to be understood, whether or not it offends me or anybody else. Because I really do believe that Scripture is God's Word and it's intended to shape us and nourish us. So to me, that's an example of how a, go- a sort of godly fear would inform your reading. I want to know the truth even if it condemns the entire Western world and everybody in political office and everybody in my sociology department. <laughs> I don't care who it affects. I want to know what it, what's actually being said because I believe that it's God's word. To me, that's, an, that's also a demonstration of godly fear. You, when you're not so concerned about how it's being received, just, I want to know what it says. Yeah. Well, that reminds me, you know, what Paul talks about the whole counsel of God and why expository preaching is important, too, because you are going through the whole book and everything that God has to say to you in that chapter, you know, like you said, some churches skip over that. I've, I've, I've been to churches where I'm like, hey, we just did this one. Yeah. We're just leapfrogging out to this one, you know? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think, you know, the. Translation you, you, you use is important. Uh, the way you approach the scripture is important. You're really trying to hear it as God's word um, for what it is as God's word. Now, sound preaching is the next thing. Now, why? Uh, go ahead, Richard. Since we're expressing our, our personal thoughts and yeah, opinions yeah. here today, yeah. uh, one of my one of my pet peeves. Uh, is the overuse of uh, in, in preaching or in, in, a, in any context the reference to the author of the particular book or saying okay. for instance Paul says yeah. when and I love what we do in reformed churches at the end of the reading of the word we say that this is God's word and right. various different ways of phrases of saying that and the congregation responds thanks sure. be to God yeah. and it, it, it's it's not, it's not a bad thing to reference this, this is Paul or maybe this is Matthew and, and, and the gospel, but this is God's word. Yeah. And in Timothy, we're told that it's breathed by, the, by God. Right. So, um, you know, I think that there's, there's, there's just so much more 
um, that is lost when we focus on trying to understand what what was Paul's thinking or things like that. Paul, what he wrote down, yes, he understood what he was writing in, in much better, deeper ways than we do. But Paul wrote things that he didn't realize what he was writing. I think I think that's a good point, and I do. I have seen an over concern with say source criticism. Yes. <laughs> lead to uh, dismissiveness of just plain meaning. Um, so I remember I was in a high-level meeting in a denomination that I used to belong to with you know guys who were teaching at the seminary and were authorities in the church bureaucracy. And, and some, one, one of them just said just offhandedly, oh, it's obvious that uh, Paul was a misogynist. <laughs> but but you see the thing was is they were trying to dismiss everything he had to say about gender roles and and sex roles in the church. Um, I find with some of the, the versions or aversions like the message is it's taking the Hebrews four twelve where the word of God is sharper than a two edged sword. So the reason it's sharper than a two edged sword is because it can pierce down to your soul. But if they dull it down to a butter knife. No one actually gets hurt. Well, then, then that's what they try to do. No one actually gets convicted. Okay. No one gets changed. Right. Yeah. So uh, you know, and there actually is. So we started off with a critique of the Second Great Awakening. There's a connection here. Too much audience orientation. That's what the Second Great Awakening was really wrapped up with. Was audience orientation. What What will people like to hear? What will make them do what we want them to do? So rather than challenge, now it wasn't as though all the preachers in the Second Great Awakening were man pleasers. I don't mean to imply that, but there was a kind of disposition that was kind of a salesmanship disposition. Kind of, we're trying to, so, you know, we're trying to make this as appealing as possible. And it just keeps, it's, it, you know, maybe, maybe there was a certain set of things that were done that were understandable and, and even uh, good, but there's been a kind of an ongoing trend in, the, in that direction. So seeker sensitivity, you know, is an, another example. Of, it's all part of the same trajectory. It's not, it's not as though this is just something that occurred then. It's, there really is a kind of... So when we think about, say, you know, what, was, what happened in the... In the uh, early 70s, Chuck Smith and all that. Yeah, a lot of good things came out of that. Um, but it was, it was also something that kind of led to some other things that maybe aren't so good. The thing about Chuck and all the other Catholic chapel guys that are conservative is just they focus on expository. So you might have a half an hour singing worship by but Chuck was utterly committed to expository preaching, as were most of those Catholic chapel guys. Now, I belong to a church where he started to go off into some of the Looney, Looney Tunes type stuff, and it, it imploded the church. So I, mean, it, yeah. well, I guess what I'm saying is, like even in Idaho, that guy was seriously just expounding the Word of God, and he's in First Corinthians chapter 6. And he, and he went back to explain First Corinthians 5 for about 20 minutes. And, and everything was in context, and there was a great point of the sermon. Yeah. So they're very good at preaching. Like they put that very 
been prominent in their services. Yeah, and I think we can say those are our brothers and sisters. You know, well, Catholic, because I came from there, so you, if you don't say that, I'm going to have to hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts or questions about? Is that, yeah. One of the things that struck me is that two of these essential parts of ordinary religious worship are have to be corporate. Yeah. Um, you you can read the scriptures privately. You can sing privately in in private or or what, what the, the covenanters call it secret worship yeah. um, uh, but preaching and hearing of the word and the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments have to be corporate and so there's uh, that there's a balancing element of that against the individual focus maybe it has a little bit to do with it what you were talking about the audience you know audience focus but. I think there let's think about the, particularly the preaching um, because you come across some people who say, well, I read my Bible at home. I don't need preaching. You know, I don't need to be in a church to have some you know, preacher you know, preach to me. So what is it about preaching that distinguishes it from just kind of reading Scripture and sort of personal Bible study? Any thoughts? Or can I, can I make the question go even a little bit? What is, what is different about preaching and me as a father teaching my children during family worship. Yeah, good point. Any, any thoughts? Well, I have a weird one. Okay, well, it's not a big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a theory, I, I believe it to be accurate, as do the Scottish Covenanters. So they have that in common, that this... When we begin with the, the invocation, uh, this is a, a time in history that the Holy Spirit comes and in power utilizes these means of grace. And so preaching the office of the preacher is like a prophet. And Calvin even said this. That the, the preacher is like the prophet of God. And I read Jeremiah this morning. They wanted to kill him. That they didn't pro- he didn't prophesy what they wanted him to prophesy. They didn't like it. They wanted to kill him. And so you're prophesying, as it were, the will of God. And it's a heavy office. I don't want to yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I, think, I think that that's certainly uh, you know, a big element in what's going on. I think a couple other things to consider, too, is that uh, the fact that you're addressing the body is important. You know, this is you know the church gathered, the body of Christ gathered, hearing God's word, and often um, a couple things can happen in that in a setting like that. Sometimes people can get something out of it that you didn't intend for them to get, but it's still good. So I've had this weird experience where. You know, years pass and somebody comes up to me I don't remember or don't think I ever met. I was just somebody was in a, a congregation I was preaching in. They say, that message you delivered changed my life. And I'll say, oh, great. What did I say? And they'll tell me. And I was like, in my mind, I'm thinking, I would never have said that. Not in a million years would I have ever said that. <laughs> I didn't say that. It's, but I'm like, well, I'm so glad. <laughs> so what's going on? Any thoughts? What's going on when that happens? Yep, David. 
Yeah, I think there's something that God is doing in, a, in, the, in, his, in his church that's really remarkable that maybe that person would never have been able to sort of arrive at just through their personal Bible study. But God is using the preached word in ways that divide, you know, uh, you know, bone, marrow, soul, and spirit in ways that it's not like I'm a, I'm, I'm a doctor with a scalpel and I'm, you know, I know exactly everything that's wrong with everybody or what they need to know or, or, or hear or to be encouraged. God is doing stuff um, that you don't know you need and I don't know you need. <laughs> you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. I think God sets up like dominoes in your life and it may take years to make all those dominoes all lined up. But at one point, someone along that journey is going to tip over the first domino and it ends at the end where salvation happens. And yeah. all those things that God set up in your life, you finally realize, oh, I get it. Yeah, and I wouldn't know that. But through the preaching, so, so you know, so like when, you, when, when I preach, you know, I obviously have something I have prepared and I'm going to, there are things that happen though. Um, sometimes as I'm preaching, something occurs to me I said, I need to talk about this. I hadn't thought about that. Now, um, I'm not saying that, you know, the Spirit has taken over my, my, me in such a way that I can't control myself <laughs> or something like that. It's not like I'm a robot or something. And I'm not even sure necessarily that every time that happens, it's f- for this reason. But there are just things that happen in the moment that are not um, fully orchestrated by the pastor. And I think that's part of the preaching, is, is something is happening. God is doing something. Um, so the fact that it's the congregation that's receiving the word, that this is the word preached, I think this is another thing. This is an authoritative proclamation of God's word from an outside source. It's not you reading your Bible alone in the woods, which is, has a tendency to kind of like reinforce all of your prejudices, <laughs> you know, maybe even... Um, just be you talking to yourself. Now, of course, God's word can interrupt that too. You can see something you wouldn't have seen or what have, what have you. But it's important to have some kind of outside um, input. And I'm not saying that's because I'm super smart or anything, but it's just the fact that it's God's word. And that's another reason why you don't like just stick with your, um, you know, with your with your hobby horses. Um, why you try to preach through the word the whole counsel of God. Um, so I'm preaching a, a, a very challenging psalm this morning, Psalm 88. Most psalms have an upside. There's no upside to Psalm 88. You'll hear me talk about this is just really depressing psalm. <laughs> There's no light it ever appears <laughs> in the psalm. Uh, but it's in God's word. It needs to be preached as it's presented not apologized for or softened or anything like just as it is. Yeah. I, I've been listening to like the history of the church. Uh, we have this great guy, I uh, can't remember his name, but um, it's a great series. And, and I didn't know this, and I've heard it before, but maybe I did, I forgot. But the Presbyterians, uh, pastors, had to go through a lot of training to become a pastor. But the Baptists were like, kind of like, go ahead, just that's good enough. <laughs> you go out there, and and that really affected some things in, oh, yeah. in the church because you had guys who really probably weren't ready or trained, 
to handle the word of God properly, you know, properly dividing the word, which you got a lot of crazy things. Not that it can't happen in the Presbyterian church, but there was a lot higher standard uh, held yeah. for the Presbyterian. Yeah, I, I, I know it from the inside. You know, I've, I've, I know sort of what's expected in different denominations. Uh, and pretty much uh, in, the, in the Protestant world, the Presbyterians are the Jesuits, meaning the elite. That's why we run all the publishing houses, why we run all of seminaries. It's, it really is for that reason. But it also has slowed us down. <laughs> so the reason why you show up, you know, the Presbyterian shows up and the, and the town has already got 30 Baptist and Pentecostal churches <laughs> is because the standards were not very high. <laughs> so, it, so it has a way of slowing you down. Yes, Steve. And we've been talking about how, the, you know, of course, there's individuals who want to go off onto the woods and and um, we're all here, and we're all—we all have the basic assumption of the significance of the centrality of the church, that we are the body of Christ, and it's in that context where we even have our discussions. And so, uh, there is a tendency towards, you know, in, in many parts of our society, towards like uh, like a radical individualism, and many times I think that like these churches are trying to pander to that to a degree. Uh, but I just yeah, think I just, the significance of, of the fact that we are the church, and I, for some yeah. reason, I just... And let me just finish up with this particular thought. Uh, kind of kind of relates. The guy's familiar with Joel Olstein, right? Yeah. So he's definitely a child of the Second Great Awakening, definitely a child of Azusa Street. He is. There's a direct line between Joel Olstein and Azusa Street. And when you think about it, uh, there's also a kind of salesmanship to Osteen. Um, so I had a remarkable experience. This is, I'm not going to divulge any names. But when I was at the Bitcoin conference, I had a guy that was on a session with me years ago who was disciplined and excommunicated, who now has a Bitcoin business. And we were like, hey, let's go out to lunch. Kind of, we caught up. He's kind of living outside. He's very wealthy. He lives outside the United States in Portugal. He uh, works with extremely wealthy clients from all over the world. Anyway, so uh, he and I talked for a little bit, and you know, we we're just kind of catching up, and um, we didn't get into any spiritual stuff. And then his daughter called me. I hadn't talked to her in maybe I don't know ten years at least, and she wanted to know about the conversation. And then she informed me that he's now a big Osteen guy. This was a guy who was on a who was a, a PCA ruling elder, divorced his wife, fled the country to escape taxation. <laughs> We're talking about a guy who has some sin issues and takes comfort in Joel Olstein. Best life now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what he believes. <laughs> but I was just stunned when she told me. I was like, you're kidding me. You know, I remember having conversations with that guy. You know, he knows his scripture. He knows the scriptures. He knows Reformed doctrine. He knows about sin. It's not as though there's anything he doesn't know about. He's suppressing the truth. Yeah. Maybe. Um, I just want to share my personal experience with Joel Olstein. Okay. I massaged him on several occasions over a couple or three years. You did well. I Oh wow! You've gotten real close to him. <laughs> my daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law uh, Whitney's uncle, was his sound guy. So I heard all kinds of stuff from Houston 
about kind of the inside of life. Anyway, so uh, we should wrap it up. Why don't we pray? <laughs> I just have to say that when you say Azusa Street equals Joel Olsen. He's from it. There's okay, no and so is Simon Magnus. <laughs> I, I did not hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> As a separate witness. No <laughs> what I'm saying is the power of the Holy Spirit was apparent with the disciples and Peter, and then comes Simon Magnus. Mm-hmm. And so we have Joel Olstein. We might say, oh, that's the Jerusalem Pentecostal place. <laughs> and so I just, I think we still need to be careful there. Like you said before, there were good things. I'm not a big Azusa Street fan guy, but I am pretty convinced Calvary Chapel is a legitimate work of the Sovereign Spirit. Not to say that a lot of bad things couldn't come out of there. They certainly did. But to just kind of designate Joel Olstein is is what happens with Azusa Street. That's I know. Well, you. I mean, we can talk about you know Bishop Sprong in the Anglican world. We can talk about you know you know uh, Robert Schuler and the Reformed. You know, and or you know talk about. So there are there are lots of different people who we could point out in different theological traditions who who have departed from. You know, Norman Vincent Peale. He was Reformed. He was from a Reformed denomination. Yep, Schuler's the same way. But anyway, so, anyway, so good well, point we'll take. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your help this morning, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen.